the um, discussion about tenting and the comparison the Bible makes about tenting, a temporary versus a permanent, enduring, eternal dwelling. Some people do live in tents. People live in tents that don't necessarily see any way to get into a permanent home. Kind of poking at that question a little bit, one of our TV stations locally here, they, 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 did, they, they, they did a survey over the last uh, three months with homeless people, and uh, particularly those who were living in tents, and uh, their tent cities that have popped up, and uh, so on, and they, they, they asked several questions, but one of the questions they asked was, would you, if you were given a choice, if you could just do one or the other, would you rather spend tonight in a tent or in a shelter? 89% of the people responded they would rather spend the night in the tent rather than the shelter. Now that's initially kind of a surprising response. I wouldn't have thought it was going to go that way. I thought the big problem was there's not enough room in shelters, but there are also some other problems with some of the shelters. There are problems some people have with some of the rules and restrictions and things they can't do in the shelters, but there are also some shelters that are not run and managed very well, and bad things can happen within the shelter that they want to stay away from. Uh, the, uh, the whole environment of homelessness can be a very dangerous um, uh, situation to be in, of course. The, the, but, but that 89%, that surprised me. Now, they didn't ask if you had the choice, would you, rather, would you rather spend tonight in a tent or an apartment or a house, a more permanent dwelling, even a hotel room? Chances are many would have answered that question differently. And yet, still many would not. I've talked to men on the street who, who have lived on the street for several years and said that they prefer the freedom of living on the streets to taking personal steps it would take to move back toward life with a permanent home. So there's certainly some of this mindset that this temporary living, whatever it looks like, whether it's tent or not even that much of a structure, that that's preferable to taking steps in life toward a permanent home. Now that intrigues me because I think to some extent there's some parallels there to the Christian life, to our walk with the Lord. You see, we would say, we would say that we look forward to that eternal home more than this present temporary existence. And yet, many of the choices that we make reinforce the present. Or they make the temporary more comfortable rather than investing in and furnishing out our permanent home. The chapter before us this morning... 2 Corinthians chapter 5 teases out this tension between our present temporary home and an eternal promise that God has given us, an enduring promise of an eternal home that he has made and prepared. So I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 966. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and... Um, 
As we come to chapter 5, background in the book, there's been some tension between Paul and the church. There's, there is some restoring of relationship that he's been working at. At chapter 2, you saw some of that. He points out in chapter 2 that somebody has attacked him, but, but that he doesn't take it personally, that the one who has hurt him has actually caused hurt with all of them and the separation that has been created here. Perhaps it's been some tearing down or dismissing of Paul because the things that he said called for adjustments that this individual didn't want to make. And so instead, they, they react and they try to tear down the messenger and get people to not listen to him, to go in a different direction instead. He teases that out a little bit more. Uh, there's some external power. There's some worldly power in politics at play. And, and in chapter 3, Paul talks about the enduring matters. And it doesn't matter about personal recommendations. What matters is the enduring work of the Spirit within us. That people would point to Paul, the trouble in Paul's life. And he, he seems to, Paul seems to maybe be a troublemaker because he keeps getting into trouble everywhere, everywhere he goes, right? He's, he, he's, in, he's been in jail. I mean, this guy's got a police record, let's face it. Uh, those are things you could, you could use against him. Do we really want to get too close to Paul? You know, the authorities might come looking at us. And, and, uh, but he uses those things in chapter 4. Those sufferings that he has endured, those are actually a badge of the sincerity of his ministry, how he has how he has followed after the self-sacrifice for the, for the, for the um, needs of others that Jesus himself, Jesus himself demonstrated and lived out for us. And so, so that actually, those sufferings, those hardships, Paul says, those are not to be avoided. Those are working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then we come to chapter 5. Now, in chapter 5, Paul seems to be laying a foundation for the reconciled and restored relationship between him and the church, and that, thus their walk together with Christ toward glory. He seems to be reminding them of the eternal realities of their own relationship with God, that God has reconciled them, and that, has set their, that should be setting their direction and their attention toward an eternal future rather than temporary distractions. In this chapter, he's going to press us to see that we will not always live in a tent, but we will live. We will endure. Our future is in a house where God, that God has provided for us and will provide for us. That We need to know where home is because we orient the rest of our life toward home. Even I talk to the kids, you know, we don't orient the rest of our life around where we go camping normally. But by and large, we orient life around home. So we need to know where home really is rather than where it seems to be. Let's read verses, um, verses 1 to 10 or even 1 to 11 of chapter 5. With, with that in mind, the future intention with the present. For we know that if this tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He's talking about this physical body as a tent, this physical temporal life, this mortality versus the immortality which will come. And he says this, this uh, we, we groan in this physical body, longing to put on a heavenly dwelling. Can anybody identify with that? If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked or underclothed. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, 
but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage then. We, we know that while we are at home in the Lord, we are, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For, because, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, the hinge verse, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. There's a lot that's there. First of all, Paul is teasing. I said there's this tension between the present versus the future. Know your future beyond this life. First of all, he unpacks this whole thing about what is the afterlife? Where is life really? And he addresses a, a um, view of what happens beyond this life that's been impacted or affected by a Greek worldview that that. D- dismissed any future resurrection, that dismissed any future physical body in a resurrection, that dismissed anything of the material world. And so Paul says, well, there is a material and an immaterial part of us. That the immaterial part of us, think soul and spirit, are clothed within a material, physical body. And that when we die, we will be absent from the body and thus present with the Lord, that we don't go into a soul sleep temporarily. We don't go off to purgatory somewhere and get further cleansed and purified before we can go and be in, in heaven with the Lord. But to be absent from the body at physical death, separation of the soul and spirit from the physical body, to be absent from the body is to then be ushered right into the presence of God. But Paul talks about this being unclothed. He says, we'd, we'd rather actually not be unclothed, but further clothed upon. And what he's talking about is what I really want, Paul says, is to not go through death and the spiritual separation from the body, even with the presence of the Lord, although I'd rather be in the Lord's presence than here, we'd rather that than this, yes, but what I really long for, he says, is the resurrection, is the rapture for, for the Lord Jesus to come and to call all of us up and those who have died already, their bodies are going to be raised and we who are alive and remaining, 1 Thessalonians 4, are going to be changed and our bodies won't be then, we won't be unclothed from our body at all but we will be further clothed upon. That our body, even while we're in it, is going to be transformed and changed. That's what he's describing here. So there is a notion about the future. You might think about what happens, what's heaven like? You might have this goofy idea about floating around kind of as a spirit, and yet you can hold a harp. Well, how do spirits hold solid things like harps? Well, they must have some solidity to them, right? Well, if they're solid so they can hold a harp, how do they sit on a cloud? It doesn't make any sense. I'm thinking through these things, and it just doesn't add up. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about a spiritual reality. Yes, we still exist even apart from our bodies, and yet the body is part of us. And the body, even this one that's laid to rest and waiting, that body is somehow connected to the future life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul compares it to a seed. 
The future body will be more than this one. Aren't you glad for that? For some of you men, the future body will have a full head of hair. Think of what that would be like. Wow. For some of you, this is the ultimate knee or hip replacement. I mean, it's the whole deal replacement. All of it better than titanium. Imagine what that would be like. Well, it's like a seed compared to a plant. When you take a little tiny little brown seed, maybe it's a brown seed, maybe it's a different color, I don't know, depends on the seed, doesn't it? You take that seed and you put it in the ground, and then what grows? A bigger brown, round seed? No. This whole plant comes up, and it might be a bush. It might grow into a tree, and it's huge, and it's magnificent. Jesus talks about the mustard seed, a little tiny seed in this this great big tree. Well, by Texas-sized trees, not by our size trees. But anyway, there's this tree that comes out of this little tiny seed. And how does that happen? It's way more, way more than the seed ever was, right? And yet everything about that tree or plant or bush came from where? It didn't come from the dirt, didn't come from the water. It came out of the DNA, the genetics of that seed, What will be is intrinsically, inseparably related to the seed that is planted in the ground. So also, Paul says, what your future life, the incorruptible, the immortal body that this mortal must put on, that this corruptible must put on incorruption, but that future resurrection body that we will live very human existences, even like Jesus in his resurrection body. And yet, think of it, think of the future in terms of of a humanity that is like but even better than the Garden of Eden. Serving God as stewards and regents over all of his creation, yet without any sin getting in the way between you and God, between you and yourself, and between you and one another. No sin even better than the Garden of Eden. So, in that, in that aspect, then that, that seed, the things that this, this mortal physical life is not just to be dismissed and discarded, as the Greeks would say. They would say on one side, whatever you do in the material physical life doesn't really matter because that will not endure. I would say it matters much. It's the seed. Others would say, no, 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 the material life is all evil. Everything material and physical is evil. Only spiritual is good. So we need to, as much as we can, separate ourselves from everything material. And in the Christian mindset, that's where monks and monasteries came out of. Get away from the physical world and all of its entrapments as much as we can. But we find that the problem is not merely out there. The problem is also in here, so that doesn't work. Well, a balanced Christian worldview would, would, would say all of those, each of those extremes is missing the boat. That this present life is in fact God's workshop. This is where God is using the stuff of this life and our service for Christ in it to stretch us and grow us for eternity. Even the hurts and the aches and the heartbreaks of this life given into his hands to mold us and shape us more into his likeness and his, can I say, heartedness for all of eternity. We are growing in a Christ-like character and capacity to the extent that we yield ourselves into our God and Savior's hands and directions and service and ministry in this life. 
We are today shaping the seed, determining thus what will be, what will grow. So this life relates to future life. There's a link between this present and the future. That's seen in verse, in verse 10. It talked about that Bema seed. It talked about that judgment. This is not merely a reward judgment place. Paul says we will all appear. All humanity will appear before judgment. The, the, the term that's used is a genuine tribunal, not merely a reward stand like in the Olympics. Although for us it will feel more like that as Christians. But, but this is the same kind of, it's, it's the same place where Paul, when he was in Corinth... People initially, Jews who, who opposed his gospel message of faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation, they, they brought charges before the, the highest official in the city, before the proconsul, Gallio, and he, he sat on his bima seat, his judgment seat, and he passed judgment, not against Paul. Paul, in fact, was vindicated, and his accusers were found to be at fault, and they were the ones who were beaten and, and sent away. Paul and his gospel were vindicated at that time before a, a human court. Fascinating. And some of that's in the background here, that in, in Christ's judgment to come, Paul will be vindicated even before these petty accusers now. Those that would mistreat you, those who would ridicule you, you will be vindicated in your service to Christ. Think about this, this judgment then before Christ for those of us who are believers since our sin is forgiven and it will not be brought up again. That he has said as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sin and transgression from you. Then that isn't going to be brought up there. What's going to be brought up? Think of it like Oh, in football season, think of it like the Hall of Fame. And there's a highlights reel that is played. And for some sweet, faithful servants who you never would have thought of, that highlight reel is going to go on and on and on in one aspect out of another where their life was given to Christ in service and they were as Jesus towards somebody. And the highlight reel is going to go on and on. And you're like, wow, I never knew. I never noticed. I was too busy at whatever else. And then it's your turn. You were involved in a lot of stuff. You were a busy person. And your highlight reel comes up on the screen. And it's surprisingly short. It wasn't that God didn't notice. It's just that we didn't give the divine editor that much footage to work with. So much of it that we thought was good and important stuff had to be left on the cutting room floor. It wasn't of any value in eternity, so to speak. And so in that, in that judgment, there's, there's, there's loss, sure. There's loss in terms of capacity that we could have grown into in this time, in this place, when, uh, when we stand before the Lord and appearing before that judgment seat. The word appear means to be made known, that our life will be made known. We'll be known as, as what it really is, not the facade or the pretending that we put on. The point here is that this present will impact the future. It is Christ's judgment then of this life lived now that determines our character and capacity for the resurrection life to come. Our, great, our greatest danger, I mentioned last week, that greatest danger of losing eternal glory to temporary good, that comes from a casual dismissal of this reality that what I do today affects forever. 
We presume on God's good for the future, not fully appreciating how little we deserve anything. And so we spend our energies enhancing the present. We buy new appliances for the tent. Perhaps we truly believe more strongly in what we see and experience than we do what God has promised. What I believe shows what I do. So I've got to ask myself in the midst of my doing, what is it that I'm believing that leads me to do this? For instance, in parenting, you better be careful. By age four or five, you better get those little kids off to soccer camps and into soccer teams. Why? Because it's important that they learn soccer from a very young age. It is important that they learn the essentials and the mechanics of the game when they're four and five and six. You know, when they all, when they all join together and there's one mass of little short soccer players that is like a swarm of bees moving around the field and the ball's somewhere in the middle of them. It's important that they learn soccer that way first before they you know, learn other aspects because one day they're going to be really good at this. One day, in fact, if you hustle them to all the right teams and get them involved in all the right things and build their school resume along the way, one day they're going to get a college scholarship. Never mind that you could have paid for college along the way with all the stuff that you've invested in to try to make Junior a soccer star. And they don't get the scholarship anyway. What are we believing in the midst of our busyness and the things that, that those, those gold-covered plastic trophies that fill the closet are actually going to be worth something one day on eBay? Probably not. A little more work. I'm going to work longer hours now. I'm going to put in extra work and extra jobs because if we, if we had a newer car, if we had a bigger house, I mean, really, our family is growing. If we had a bigger cow, house where the kids didn't have to share their own bedrooms, they could all be in their own room, you know, by themselves. And, and we even had multiple rooms that we could watch different TV shows because we don't like to watch the same stuff. And so we could all be in our own rooms and in different TV shows. And in fact, in our big new house, we'd hardly have to see each other. We would get along so much better if we had such a place, if we worked a little harder and a little more, and we, we try so hard for what will actually do the exact opposite of what we long for. These immediate pleasures that I might give myself to, that I might indulge in, I know it's wrong, and it could be as innocent as that second bowl of ice cream. It could be far worse. I know it's wrong, but it feels good now. And it won't really matter. I'm forgiven, Right? The lie we're believing is that the present doesn't affect the future. In fact, the present doesn't determine the future. First, the, for, for, uh, Second Corinthians rather 5, 1 to 10 says that this present determines the future. This present drives the future. And so we live this, this, fu- this present in light of what God has said about the future. Look at verse 11, that, that hinge verse again. Knowing this, knowing that this mortal is going to be swallowed up by life, knowing that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, knowing then the fear of the Lord, knowing this is what's real, we persuade others. We need to know where home is. And one of the reasons we need to know where home is so we're leading other people there instead of somewhere else. We need to know where home is so that we can bring others home with us. Let's read again from 11.4. We're therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. We persuade others. But what we are is known to God and I hope is known also to your own conscience. Paul's not worried about their measure of him. He's worried about God's measure of him. 
We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul is not worried about their impression of him. Paul is worried about this argument of some who are looking at externals only and not at the matters of the heart, their own hearts and others in following after the heart of Christ. He's worried that they're going to be sucked along into those outward measures. He wants them to understand where he's coming from and following Christ so that they will not be intimidated and cowed out of following Christ with him also. That they'll be shamed into something worth far less. For the love of Christ controls us. You know, sometimes following after Christ looks illogical, doesn't make any sense, looks ridiculous. You give yourself away. Why do you give that away when you could keep that for yourself, when you could better your own situation? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave his own life away for the sake of others. And it's this love of Christ, Christ's love for me that controls us, compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. All who believed in Christ have died in him. Our life, we've counted that as, as loss. We've counted that as, as nothing in comparison to what Christ has done for us, what Christ has given us. And so we lay that all out for however he would lead. And he died for us that all those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, we don't understand anybody based merely on fleshly, physical, outward observance. That's what he's saying. He's not saying I only measure people from, but it's, what I, it's how I perceive. How do I understand? How do I measure? How do I conclude things? We don't measure or conclude things according to the flesh, even though we once regarded even Jesus according to the flesh. We regard him that way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sin against them, and entrusting to us the message of this reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was without sin, so that to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, have his right standing and acceptance before God. That's what he's done for us. That's the message that he's given to us. Bring others home with you. Why does Paul keep going? Why you and I should too? Not being led off course by others, underseeing things as they really are so that we're not distracted by all that glitters but is not gold. It's merely plastic trophies. Not regarding anyone from merely a mortal perspective. The according to the flesh, it talks about how we perceive things, how we know things. You see, I don't even judge Jesus. There was a time when the world judged Jesus. Imagine that. The one who everyone will appear before, the world first judged him. You know what they said? This man is not worth the trouble he causes. It's better for him to die. They were right in the fact that it's better for one to die for the, for the sake of the whole nation or the whole world. 
But they said, this Jesus causes more trouble to us than he's worth. Let's take his life. As if they could. They judged him merely outwardly. But we know far more because we, we know Jesus based on whom God has said him to be. This is my beloved son. Hear him. This is the son of God who came into the world to live a, a fully eternal human life that he might die in our place. He gave his life willingly to be our savior to give us his eternal life. That's whom God says Jesus is. And that's how we know him now. You know, I no longer know April as just a cheery, friendly person who seems to be quite a servant and helps out a lot. I know April as a child of God, as an heir of glory, as a joint heir of Jesus Christ, whom God has personally chosen and selected and called to be his ambassador and the one to carry his message to certain people. Privilege is given to her and nobody else. I know April that way, not because of things that I can fully observe on my own, but because that's what God has said about her. That's what God has said, Christian, about you. We know one another, and we know the people in the world around us. That we know from chapter 3 that God has said that these are people whose spiritual eyes and understanding the enemy, the God of this age, has blinded so that they cannot see and perceive and understand the gospel. And so we will pray for them, and we will talk to them. We understand everybody, not from how nicely they get dressed up, or where they live, but we know them based on what God has said about them, him who so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's how we regard the people around us. We see believers as a new creation, already leaning toward the eternal that we will be rather than what we merely are now. We see ourselves, we understand ourselves then as Christ's ambassadors those who have been given a message, those who carry his invitation. An invitation to be reconciled. First of all, to be reconciled myself. Now I see Jesus. Or to come and be his reconciler. Now I see Jesus' call on me. I see these things not according to the flesh, but because I believe God's word concerning them. I believe God's word about the tent versus the eternal home. I see God's word that this present life is merely his workshop fashioning what will be for me in all eternity. That Jesus took our sins so that we might have his right standing, verse 21. That that message is the means by which God is saving humanity from their brokenness. You can see that brokenness all through the world in the news every day. And yet the single way in which God is addressing humanity's brokenness and sin is the message of reconciliation. This is the way home. There's only one way for humanity to come home. There's only one way for the one whom you know and care about who does not believe in Jesus. There's only one way for them to come home. And that is through this message. And yet God is doing that through us. What was God thinking? 
Why did God take this grandest, glorious, his greatest work through all history and he put it in my hands? Let me use football terms again. Doesn't he know that Bob's a running back that tends to drop the ball? Doesn't he know that if I was a wide receiver, that Bob would be that wide receiver who would be going long for the pass, the touchdowns ahead of me, and I would just let the ball go right through my fingers? Why did God give this grand of work of his ever to me and to you? That boggles my mind, and yet that's what we, it doesn't make any sense, and yet that's exactly what God has chosen to do. He's given it to us. And so, if we were to go back to my tent illustration again, imagine you are a homeless person. You live in Tent City. One day, as you're going about, with most of your stuff in the backpack over your shoulders, you come across a new apartment complex. And the place is huge. They don't even know how many units there are. There's, there's a big sign out front, and it says, limited time offer, free rent to those who apply. I can't be right. There aren't massive lines. People aren't pushing and shoving, you know, trying to, trying to get first in line like Black Friday when you can get a new TV. But you wander in, you check it out, you can't believe what you find. It's just like this said. Apparently somebody rich, Paul Allen or somebody, had, had decided to step up and do something. They took a bankrupt building project and they took it, they finished it, and they furnished it, and they're taking in residence rent-free, first come, first served. It's too much to take in, but you take it. You move into your finished place, your furnished apartment, and, and your tent and your backpack look a little out of place over there in the corner. You sleep, you shower, you just enjoy it. It is so nice to have a home. But still you wonder, is something wrong? Why aren't more people here taking advantage of this unbelievable offer? At first you shrug it off, but it's hard to let go. It keeps coming back. You almost, you almost feel guilty that you're here, safe and sound, and others are still in tents or cardboard boxes or worse. You ask at the front desk where you applied, and the agent just kind of shrugs and Says, well, the owner has, has left it up to those who come here first to spread the word and invite others. But, he says, most of those who've come so far don't really do much to get the word out. You decide you're going to get the word out. You're going to head back to Tent City right now. You're going to bring everyone you can. That dude in the next tent that snored so loud you couldn't sleep. The lady who has the flower pots out front of her tent, even though her tent has holes in it. That, 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 that young family that's crowded into a three-person tent, you go and you tell everyone you can, and yet most of them don't believe you. They say, dude, you must be off your meds again. Truth be told, you haven't needed your meds since you came home. But you keep on inviting those you can because this is too good to keep to yourself. You've got to share this with others. And besides, you want neighbors to share this wonderful new life with. You go out each day with more invitations because all the reward you need is the fresh, genuine wonder and joy that you see light up a face of a person who does believe and sees that they can finally come in and be home. Right where you are, right here, right now, I want to extend to you that invitation. 
that in terms of relationship with the God of the universe, the God who made you, you can come in and be home. You who have no claim upon him, you who have rebelled against him just as I, and yet he said, my son bore that for you. You can just simply say right where you sit, God, I believe you concerning Jesus. I trust him as the basis of your acceptance and making me your own child. I trust your promise concerning Jesus for me. It's as simple as that. You could come forward. I would love to pray with you. But the coming is the thing. The believing in Jesus is the same. It's the kind of thing that you can't keep yourself. You've got to tell somebody. Or maybe you, you say, no, I've been saved, but Bob, I've been distracted. I've been chasing around after many other things rather than leaning toward my eternal home. I've forgotten that this tent is merely temporary. I've allowed distractions and my wandering to get in the way between me and my Savior. And you as well can enjoy that reconciliation again. When we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore that fellowship that we can have, that relationship that we can have with him. Lastly, I want to invite those of you who are Christians, those of you who have believed in Jesus and who are thus his ambassadors, I want you to remember again somebody, somebody that you're near, somebody that you know, somebody maybe that's been on your heart. And let's again, let's lift up that one in prayer. Lord, would you use me as your ambassador to them? I don't do that because I even know what to say, but I do that because you have said, that's who I am. Help me then carry this message to them. So we're going to pray. Maybe, maybe your prayer is to come home, trusting God's forgiveness. Maybe your prayer is to come closer, turning from things that have something that has distracted you. Maybe your prayer is to go further as his ambassador. You know, in all of these things, we don't have to get ourselves up to the point that we're acceptable by God to do that. We, in the words of a song, we come as we are. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who strayed. Come sit at the table, come taste of grace. There's rest for the weary, a rest that endures because earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. I want us to invite, I want to invite us now. Let's just pause in prayer. And if this is the time to come home by faith in Christ, I want to invite you to do that or to come closer or to go further. Let's pray. Father, first of all, I want to help, Lord, somebody who's here to, to voice that prayer request of coming home. Lord, knowing that I'm separated from you because of sin, and yet I do trust Jesus as your son who died in my place, who took my sin away, that I could have his right standing with you. Reconciled, restored in relationship to you because of Jesus. Lord, I believe you, I trust you for that. 
In Jesus' name. Lord, for those of us who so easily let other things distract us, Lord, we wander off on one trail or another. Father, we renounce that thing that has gotten in the way. That thing that even has made us feel guilty and that guilt and shame causes us to hide from you. Lord, we embrace again your full and free forgiveness. And we come back, Lord, into your embrace. Wanting, Lord, to be used by you. Knowing, Lord, others. There are many names many faces that are in our minds right now, those that we want to share this eternal home with, this eternal restoration and reconciliation. Father, would you bring them? Father, would you give us the joy of seeing it? Use us somehow in the midst of that. Lord, bring them home. In Jesus' name. Father, as we present ourselves as we present these offerings to you now. Father, we, these, these prayers of confession that we might include on these communication cards, the name of someone we want to pray for on these cards, Lord, maybe even a rejoicing. Today, I believe in Jesus on that card. Father, we use these communication cards to present ourselves to you as well as that which we bring in offering. Lord, would you use what we bring? Would you use us in this, your greatest work of redemption? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.